Bonjour. On this fine Monday afternoon, we find ourselves, and each other, what a novelty, in La Bulle. It is the nicest, chicest co-working space of all time. Monica, a moment ago, was lying a floor, face up, don't worry. It just feels so much better on my back, she says. Um, but perhaps, Monica, you would like to speak for yourself? Yes. <laughs> nice of you to come all the way from Toronto for this recording, Emma. My pleasure. And yes, this establishment is a fine one, with exposed brick walls, appropriately soundproofed a la Proust's bedroom. And our favorite part is the Admiral Green trimmed courtyard, which perfectly matches <laughs> both of our dresses. We'll um, get some photo evidence for you. How fortuitous that Proust should be on your mind, Monica, because our imaginary dinner guest, like Marcel himself, apparently enjoyed writing a bed. <laughs> Quite. A reconstruction of that auspicious Proustian bedroom, as we well know, exists here in Paris at the Carnivalet Museum. And mere blocks from where we sit is the Paris apartment, the first one, of Edith Wharton. Yes, 53 Rue Varenne. Later, we shall go there with cold champagne and strawberries and cream in tribute. But we've already said too much. Monica, who will be joining us in just a moment? Our guest today, Lauren Collins, is a fellow North American expat and journalist in Paris, who everyone's been telling me I absolutely have to meet for quite some time now. You'd have so much to discuss, so no pressure on today's chat. Is that why you've exceeded your espresso quota? Oh, for shame. <laughs> um, Lauren Collins began contributing to The New Yorker in 2003 and became a staff writer there in 2008. She's been based in Paris, covering stories mainly from France, and she's the author of When in French, Love in a Second Language, which the New York Times named as one of its 100 notable books of 2016. And we are thrilled that she'll be bringing one of our other favorite exported North Americans in Paris along with her to dinner as her date. <laughs> no, not Emily. No, no, no. <laughs> the one and only Edith Wharton. I'm beyond excited about this. I was listening to the Hermione Lee biography uh, audiobook just a moment ago while in the red room of the Louvre staring at the beautiful Delacroix with my extremely heavy two-year-old passed out in my arms <laughs> and hearing about her relationships, her life, her unbelievable kind of lifestyle creation, and then, of course, her her writing and her writing habits. And we've also both been frantically, fervidly, passionately, of course, reading her, her oeuvre, which is an extensive oeuvre. It is extensive. I mean, I had uh, read and seen the movie The Age of Innocence, um, but there it goes... Which is also known as Gossip Girl. Yes! <laughs> Did you know that that's what Cecily von Zigazaga was... Zigazaga was basing Gossip Girl on? Well, Do you remember that tidbit? I, I actually forgot about that. that. Juicy morsel, But I yeah. am... Zero percent surprise. Serena Vanderwoodson equals Countess Olenska. Go, you just hot mic dicks. You're so excited. Oh my God! Sorry, Jean Gabriel. I leaned in too far. I got so excited. I hear you. Oh, and um, Thingermadu is Blair Waldorf, and she even looks like Blair Waldorf. She does. May. Yeah, May Welland. Who is played in the film by um, Winona Ryder brilliantly. Check it out. Check out. Check out the book, check out the film, check out the book on tape, check out Gossip Girl, the book and the Especially series. Especially the books. I don't know about the series. But kind of more the books for Gossip Girl, I agree. Or don't, because they're pretty traumatizing. Now that I'm a parent, I'm like, don't do that at 16, children. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> Still read them, they're amazing. Mm. Oh, is that the door? <laughs> Welcome, Lauren. Bienvenue. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I hope Edith didn't get here first. No, no, no. We actually called her for a later time because we wanted some time to catch up with you first. I hope okay. that's okay. Yeah, I think we need to huddle. <laughs> Team huddle. What is this enormous parcel in your arms? <laughs> <laughs> what have I brought? What have, what I, what is have that I a here? mock turtle? <laughs> for you. We're, it's, we're doing catering for the mock 
Yeah, yeah. Emma, Emma's in charge of the catering. My gosh, I didn't know where to find a mock turtle. I'm so glad that you're resourceful enough to. So where this is a mock turtle. Fantastic. <laughs> like, I don't know what one is. I don't even know what a mock turtle is. It's from Lewis Carroll. No, they have mock turtles in Do Alice they? in Wonderland, don't they? Anyway, it was really good of you to bring a gift. Thank you. Anytime. It's really my standard. Um, I bring it to all the dinner parties. You must be extremely popular. Yeah. How has your back to school rentrée been? Um, it's been good. It was a little earlier than usual for me this year um, as I'm in the final stretches of writing a book that I've been working on forever. But um, no, my rentrée has been good. Um, I feel like I, yeah, rentrée um kind of a while ago, but it's it's been fine. How about yours? Very, very good. Thank you. I, I have to hear more about this book that you Yeah, are we allowed to find out? You are, I'll tell you. It's So the book, my first book um, was called One in French and it came out in 2016. And ever since then, I've been working on something that has absolutely nothing to do with that. Um, and it's a book about a white supremacist massacre and coup that took place in my hometown in North Carolina in 1898. Um, and it's thought to be the only coup d'etat, it was on the municipal level, but nonetheless, the only coup d'etat to um, ever have occurred on American soil. But not exactly, um, wow. maybe not dinner party conversation, but actually, um, nor does it have anything to do with Edith, <laughs> Edith Wharton, um, but actually it is and sort of does for reasons I will tell you about later. Yeah, in my spare time, I'm selling a lot of clothes on Vinted. <laughs> New hobby. I would imagine that it's necessary to have a counterpoint to that kind of work. Wow, that's that's really cool. And so are you in the kind of final revisions or still writing? Um, I'm in the writing stage, which represents progress after five years of not writing. Mm. So yeah, um, I'm writing it and I'm trying to finish it by the end of the year because the 125th anniversary of the event um, is next fall. Wow. Giving me, that gives you a good deadline. Giving me kind of, kind of a, a reason, um, some motivation to finish, so. As a fellow, you know, foreigner in Paris, what is your kind of favorite thing about living here? And what is your maybe least, most challenging thing? Um, so I moved to Paris extremely willingly okay. um, in 2015 after... Um, three years in Geneva, Switzerland. And right. so I like, I tell people, if you want to be happy for the rest of your life, live in Geneva and then move to Paris. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, so everything <laughs> about Paris is my favorite thing. People are like, what, what is your beef with Geneva? Why were you so miserable there? And I was thinking about that today and I realized I, I do have a distillation of what I didn't like about Geneva and the corrective um, that is Paris. I remember like, Remember in 2014, it was kind of way back in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and Russia had just annexed Crimea yes. and the EU, sanctioned Russia. Um, and this was obviously major news for everyone everywhere. I remember getting up the next day, <laughs> walking down the street and seeing the headline in the um, you know newspaper dispenser that said, um, L'embargo russe boost le gruyère. Um. So... Yeah, like the Russian embargo is great for Gruyere. That's when you um, knew you had to leave. And I was like, I got to get out of here. Like, <laughs> Russian embargo, is it good for the cheeses? That wasn't oh, wasn't really how I was looking oh at it. Oh, no. But yeah, so Paris, I'm a big fan of. Um, I think what I love living about here is um, what I love about living here is, is my neighborhood, is the, I don't know, just the community feeling. Um, I was at a birthday party recently. My son had gone to one of his friend's birthday parties and it was like people I didn't know very well in an apartment that I'd never been in before, but just across the street from ours, but on a much higher floor. So I'm in the apartment and I'm like drinking some, drinking a glass of champagne with a bunch of strangers. And I look out the window and realize that I can see directly into my living room, which for a normal person would, <laughs> you know, like a normal person, probably you should, you should be very creeped out by that phenomenon. But I got this really cozy feeling, strangely enough. And now whenever I look up and I see their light on, it's like my son's classmates, family, 
I just have this really nice feeling, even though I know that they could be like surveilling our, <laughs> our every move. <laughs> I love that. I absolutely love that. I lived alone the whole time I lived in Paris. It was in my twenty in my early twenties. And I never felt lonely because I felt like I knew all the people in the building across the way. And whenever mm. there was some kind of kerfuffle in the street, which was often, yeah. every single head <laughs> would yeah. poke out and everyone would kind of like, and it was like everyone yes. would have the same. Yeah. That's so true. People very People are very into one another's business. There are a lot of eyes on the street. Yeah. I mean, listen, there's a downside to that. I'll say one of my least favorite things, even though I obviously love it as much as you do, but there is a sort of... People do... People will offer their unsolicited advice, you know, very openly. Yeah, yeah. The old, your baby should be wearing a hat. Your baby! Even though it's July 28th. It's cold. <laughs> I, mean, it's just... I was going to say, what if I were to proceed to the things I don't love about Paris. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I also, as much as I enjoy being spied on by my neighbors, um, I do appreciate my autonomy and the high degree of stifling conformity can be a lot to take. Yeah, there is a certain amount of that. Um, and it like the tip of the iceberg would be within the within the sort of like typical fashion approach of Parisians. There's a lot of like people wearing the same thing all the time. But there are also a lot of people wearing completely mental things, which I love. More and more. Like what even... is the most mental thing you've seen on the street? Oh gosh. Okay. Because usually like, when I'm here during fashion week, I'm never surprised by anything, but I really like it when I'm here not during fashion week. But those week. people are okay. foreign. The okay. people wearing crazy For stuff For sure are they are, but they've come Mostly. here specifically to wear their most crazy thing. And sure. I love that about yeah, them. Yeah, I love that. One thing I saw that was amazing was jeans, except instead of being worn on the legs, they were worn over boots like almost like leg warmers but pulled over galoshes but denim like it was a it was a jean boot oh, because you felt those jeans sh should normally have been tucked into the boot well the person no no the person was not wearing blue jeans the person was wearing shorts but the the boots were wearing jeans oh i see so I have jeans. <laughs> it was great Wow. If you were that person, please write in with photographic evidence. I also saw someone in the Louvre today wearing the most rubberized, enormous, like, sneakers that have, like, 12 layers of shock absorbency that are kind of, like, prickly and intense and rounded. And I kind of thought that looks really comfortable. I or maybe just sheer practicality, like, most Mona Lisa viewing totally. platforms. Yes. So that was good. But it, it, there is a certain amount of... Um... Yeah, uniformity. This is the way we do things. But the French are very proud of their culture, and I suppose... I'm, like, such a goody-goody, and every once in a while, I like, this is not my normal impulse, but it just does give you this, like, impulse to be a little bit subversive. And by subversive, I mean, like, one day I'm going to write my first name in capital letters. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> not my last name, you know? You're like, one day I just want to try it. Do I just want to see what happens. Do we need that is brilliant. Do we need to explain this to our listeners? In France, there's this weird tradition of like you don't present yourself in any kind of even semi-formal setting as like your Lauren Collins. <laughs> you have to write your last name in capitals first, comma, your first name. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I don't, and I don't even know where this tradition comes from. From forms, from the endless forms that you're always trying from to collaborate in the bureaucracy. The thing yeah. that's funny is, I mean, generally speaking, like, you know, in America, for for example, people have such wild or, wilder naming conventions. Right. So if you needed something to help you distinguish between a first name and a last name, I could see it in right. a country right. where. Right? It'd be mean, useful in Edith Wharton. I'm like, like, yeah, du Dupont. Dupont. I knew, I knew that was the last name before you even wrote it in Jean-Paul is not as... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's funny. I love the forms. One of my worst and best form experiences was when I was getting my my residency card. And I had to go oh. to the place and line up and get the long x-ray and all of that. And I finally make it through. And they're like, okay. So the question is, do you live... You know, are you married? Are you single? Are you divorced? Are you widowed? Or... Are you en concubinage? Yes. En <laughs> concubinage. They asked me that too, and I was getting a visa based on my marriage. And I was like, how do you want me to be both? Okay, so but you're, you're lucky. I Count be. yourself lucky because you were married. I was subletting my flat from a male friend, so the lease was in his name. You were en concubinage. I was en concubinage. Busted. <laughs> I had to tick that box. 
chosen the great Edith Wharton to be your date tonight. Okay, first of all, are we call what are we calling her? Great Edith, question. Mrs. Wharton. Her Pussy childhood hood nickname Pussy Jones. Pussy Jones. I don't think I can Jones is her maiden name. Jones was her maiden name. And apparently her family are the Joneses of keeping up with the Joneses. That's what they say. Oh. Although I am not at all convinced by that okay. apocryphal you know, I mean, trivia, I, I kind of want it to be true. You know why? Only because <laughs> in this is really ancillary to the conversation, but in my research on my hometown, there were also some Joneses, the Pembroke Joneses oh. of North Carolina, who are also said to be the progenitors of keeping up with the Joneses. Oh. And they So I feel like you're Jones. And, and it like, sounds like they did not get up to some very nice no, stuff. No, yeah, no, they didn't. They didn't at all. Okay, um, right. I'd quite like to call her Edith. I think she respected blunt people. I think you're right. I think we just got to go with Edith. And did she respect Colquipinash? <laughs> no, but I'm ginger, so I have that going for me. We have something in common. That's true. Well, wait, it, was she a redhead? 100%. It's so funny. All the photos of her are black and white, obviously. And so I'm relying on... Hermione Lee. Exactly. And she knows everything. Hermione knows it. Hermione, <laughs> Hermione says she has red hair. She has it. I know. When she said that, I like shouted out loud. I was listening to it. And my family didn't even know that I was listening to the book. And I said, yes, she's ginger. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was getting really, I was reading a John Up, an old John Updike review of the Hermione Lee biography of Edith Wharton. And John Updike was so annoyed at the frequency of Hermione Lee's use of the word ruthless. He wrote like a 3,000 page word review that was basically like Hermione Lee says ruthless too much. And I thought it was the perfect word for Edith. If you're going to overuse one word in your, you know, thousand page biography of of Edith Wharton, let it be, let it be ruthless. Yeah. Was he mad that, like, did he think that she had every right to be ruthless? And so to emphasize it was to be kind of anti-feminist or something? He did not engage on the merits. Of the use of the word ruthless, it was well. he thought it was an rap. annoying tick, okay. and funnily enough, kept repeating himself that he objected to Hermione Lee's repetition of the word ruthless. Okay, John Updike dismissed. Yeah. <laughs> do how do we feel about the use of the word ruthless to describe Mrs. Wharton? Or you know, you've just you're not even considering Pussy Jones. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to write off. She does Pussy not Jones. want to be called Mrs. Wharton. No, PJ. Madame Wharton. Madame Wharton. Okay, let's call her Edith. For Edith. The sake of, Edith. Yeah, we're hoping this is going to be an intimate dinner. Have you read, probably you haven't because it's not a very well known one, but the short story Roman Fever? No, I let haven't. Me oh, I've like, heard about it. Well, let me tell you just a little bit about Roman Fever. Yeah. Fever. This yeah. is all you need to know about Roman Fever. It is. The real housewives of the Cunard line. <laughs> like, it has the most just brutal kind of kicker slash like big scandalous reveal at the end of the story. I won't spoil it for those of you who are all going to go directly to your collection of obscure Edith Wharton stories and read Roman Fever. Um, she pulled no punches. No, she certainly did not. She was not, not a punch puller. I mean, she didn't go to her mom's funeral. I mean, there was a lot going on there. Oh, was, I didn't tell us about that. Well, I, this is just from what I understand, listening to Hermione Lee while also parenting. So, But I think that, uh, yeah, she sent, I believe she sent her husband. Like, she was in Europe. Yeah, but she and her mom had a really complicated relationship because uh, the mom wanted her to be a dub. And wanted her to make a good marriage, like the um, protagonist of a lot of her novels. Uh, this comes from experience for her, mm-hmm. for Edith. And um, she wanted uh, her to stop reading fiction. So, and- or reading. Okay. Or, or writing all. it. Apparently, or writing it. <laughs> she wrote a story when she was a kid and was like really proud of it and went and showed it to her mom. And her mom read it. And she came back and she said, well, you have a line of dialogue, dear. Um in which someone says, well, if I'd known you were coming, I would have tidied up the drawing room. And the mother says, drawing rooms are always tidy. And that was, 
that was her only critique Correction. of her, you know. I know, like, I know. I've, uh, but also, so young Edith, from a very young age, before she could even read, apparently would walk around with a book, sometimes turned upside down, and make up, as she called it. So she would be half inventing a story and then half kind of teaching herself to read when the book was turned the right way. And she took this pursuit so seriously that, and her parents were really concerned. They were like, there is something deeply wrong with our child. She keeps making up stories. And so they would right. bring all these playmates over and try to tempt her with new toys and things. And apparently Edith would say to her mom, like, mom, please, will you play with that child for me? Because I'm making up. I have to make up. Busy. <laughs> yeah. And so her parents were, you know, they just didn't come from a context in which making up was healthy behavior. She and called her childhood an inner. She said, she never talked to an interesting person before the age of 20. Yeah. And, she th and I was like, hmm, I wonder. Yeah. But see, that's ruthless because we know that she had, wasn't it her sister-in-law who she really loved? Well, she's just, for, I think, yeah, I'm sure she's generalizing, but she had this, I think it's for people who don't know much about um, Edith's biography, she was in this upper class New York society family and which she went on to criticize a great deal. And they the entire point of young women was to marry well. And um, they were only allowed to sort of manipulate their lives under the surface. And you weren't allowed to do anything until you were married. Right. So... And once you were married, your role was to go onto Fifth Avenue and spend the money that your husband gave you. And if your and husband didn't have enough money... It was very shameful. It was very, very shameful. Hence, poor Lily Bart. Yeah, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. I want to. I I want to ask Lauren, like, how did you originally come to Wharton? What was it about her that that drew you in and that hooked you? Um. Well, so I came to Wharton kind of involuntarily, like many people, just you know, reading like Ethan Frome in high school, yeah. which I don't think made a huge impression on me. But when I was working on my first book, When in French, I found. Um, I was showing you guys before I had, I found this kind of little nonfiction, just an essay really, that Wharton had written called French Ways and Their Meaning. And I have this like completely dodgy copy of it that's one of those kind of public domain slap a cover on it. But it is unmistakably um, Edith Wharton when you open it up. I really wasn't sure if it really was written by Edith Wharton until Can I just note that they printed it out instead of writing the author Edith Wharton, they've written Wharton Edith. You're so right. <laughs> <laughs> Wharton Edith with a comma yeah. in case we were confused. In case you were confused. Um, but I love, I mean, I, I was just so kind of enchanted by this little book. And it's a funny little book. Like she's kind of, it, so it's her observations of French society and Amer her comparative observations about French society and American society. Um feeling herself to be an outsider to both of them, first of all, because she's an American living in France, and then um, because she has been um, expatriated from America for so many years. I think after her divorce, when she installed herself in France, she like she only went back to America over the course of decades for like, she went back once yeah. for, I think she went to a wedding. Um, like for two weeks. But anyway, this book is 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 really it's it's really charming and it's really paradoxical too because she's constantly saying things like um the French are the most human of the human race, the most completely detached from the lingering spell of the ancient shadowy world in which trees and animals talk to each other and began the education of the fumbling beast that was to deviate into man. And then <laughs> and then warning you against making generalizations. I love that. about so I don't know. It was it's it's kind of this just quirky little hard to categorize essay, but I had really enjoyed it um, when when I was writing about uh, about learning French. I actually can't believe I've never come across it, and I feel like there's so much material in there. I don't think it's one of her better better <laughs> known work. Um, I'm gonna go read it after. But this. I don't know. It it has some. I mean, obviously, she's a writer who um, is so beloved for among other things her her wit and her, you know, kind of crystalline um, observations about society and to see her put that intelligence to work um, on French society and its relationship to America is just delectable, really.
Fanfare is brought to you by one of my all-time favorite shopping destinations, Matches Fashion. Discover the new season at MatchesFashion.com. The Matches Fashion app, one of the most addictive apps on my phone, I don't know about you, or in person at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in Mayfair, London. Connecting the physical and digital, 5 Carlos Place aims to create a community among customers. Discover their curation of new designers and collaborations on the retail floors. Shop their full online edit via iPad and try on within 90 minutes. And interact with QR codes via your smartphone to discover content that brings the house to life. With luxury shopping suites, you can also schedule completely bespoke appointments with space to select your favorite pieces with the help of the Matches Fashion private shopping team. And as the permanent residency of their event series, Five Carlos Place plays host to cocktails, dinners, workshops, and much more. Find out what's on at matchesfashion.com. I'm wondering, where do you think we should have this dinner? Knowing that she obviously lived on Rue Varenne for a long time. she Right around the corner. Right around the corner. The Mount, to me, looks like a pretty compelling place to hang out. So the Mount is her country house? So we're going to invite ourselves there? I don't know. Or, like dinner at Edith's? Yeah. <laughs> well, we should show up. <laughs> yes. Because she would emerge. She's out on an afternoon excursion, as per her itinerary, when she had guests and things. And we imagine this through. They all just come back. And because she liked to have chill champagne ready for them. And imagine. Don't, don't we all? Yeah, don't we all? I know I do. Uh-huh. And imagine there are 10 staff members. And imagine we've, like, explained it all to the staff members, you guys. Oh, we've briefed the staff. Exactly. Okay. We'll enlist their help, but we'll kind of explain to them that we have a plan. I think we need to invite... Edith to one of our places. Okay, okay. Yeah. You've got to lure her out. And it's got to, there's got to be like, she, the only way she's coming is on pure curiosity. Totally. Because right. as much as she, you know, like to break the cookie cutter molds of her class and time, she also, you know, had a respect for tradition manners yeah she would not consort with us unless <laughs> she thought she was getting something out of it whether it would be a good meal some material for her yeah. literature um i mean she is traveling into the future that's true which could be exciting well here's what i think i think it has to be at home i think a restaurant would be far too vulgar oh, yeah. for her um i think ideally well, ideally, it would be at a country house. You're right, but I don't have one. I don't know if anyone else. Oh does. my gosh, we're having it at your. Oh <laughs> my gosh, we're having it at your. It's in-laws not house. my house, but my in-laws do have a country house that could exactly. potentially, like, it's just potentially old enough. She would really love a, that. We have to, to do everything up her, up her street. She was a great champion of <laughs> continuity. Yeah. I think is the nice way to put it. Mm, okay. Mm. All um, right. We're gonna do it. We're gonna do it over there, um, in the uh, in the countryside. It will allow for a charming walk, French country walk beforehand. She, I, I think she's gonna be thrilled, which is gonna work well for actually the fashion plans that I have um, been thinking about. But I'll get I'll get to that after. Um, okay, so we're gonna have her over uh, to the countryside. Like, what's the mood? Is it intimate? Are we? I think it's got to be intimate. I know that she once said she was having a dinner for eight, I believe, at one point. And somebody said, you know, why are you only having eight people to this splendid dinner? And she said, because there are only eight people I like <laughs> or something to that effect. There are only eight people who liked her. There are only eight people <laughs> who like There was a duchess who once complained, on a trop organisé chez elle. She was punctilious. Oh so we have to do everything right. Like we were talking about what time should this party be? And I can't even answer that because you know what we have to find out? The quote unquote right time i know because if we do it at the wrong time it'll be she never deviated no no i know it's so funny that you would not use your it's it's really funny because she deviated from the other constructs of again of her society so much but she then still embraced she was an independent spirit but who had such a strong respect for tradition yeah and I think her kind of love for like Ruskin and for kind of like the form of art criticism that does not allow for anything new, you know, anything, wasn't exactly. it? That like anything well, She didn't support women's she suffrage. She did not. Why did I invite this person? I was, I was about <laughs> to say that. No, party, it's no. really interesting because I think of her, I obviously think of her as a feminist writer, but she actually, the title feminism and okay, devil's advocate, it's earliest iteration. It wasn't, you know, applying to w- and women in her class. And perhaps she had been able to have this sort of 
independence that many other women hadn't known because of her financial independence, mm -hmm. um, which is not, this is not very flattering to Edith, but she, um, so let's say it before she gets here. <laughs> But because she had a lot of family money, and to be fair, she made a lot of money off of her novels. Yes, yeah, like they sold really super, super. And well. then they were all, um, you know, they were all staged on for the theater, right? And that made money. And they as just well. kept churning out. I mean, every yeah. iteration. So she like was that. really independently wealthy, um, and so I suppose perhaps she wasn't in the mind frame of understanding plight of women who had to but maybe i'm being too generous maybe she was just snotty about okay. suffragettes oh in terms of the voting i mean maybe she was just really jaded about politics and was like what difference does maybe it but i do think on the subject of you know decor and things having to be like he, she believed that the best thing you could do for a child was to train them to want the best which i think is really nuts when you think about poor Lily Bart in the House of Mirth and like but that's the thing. awful it is that it's she the cause of Lily Bart of her life demise. because wants the best right and so this idea that like snobbery is actually a really really good thing and you know but did I think she really to, believe that don't you think it's because the Gilded Age was such a time of Alivist versus the old guard and the importance of always proving that you were on the right side of things was a matter of the smallest social very important to prove you were old money not new money and even though i think she was like fascinated by the new money as the books show and some of her best characters are new money characters i still think it was still important that everybody be very clear on the subject that you know well and until she made her fortune that was her yeah, capital 100 percent. Exactly. her capital was being able to say Oh, but the gardenia in her. Exactly. Or in his buttonhole or. Exactly. You know. And that's how she was able to write from within. But so I think, I mean, just kind of going back to that conversation we were having, I think that was also like a, you know, yeah, a form of often very gendered capital, taste making. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know, maybe that's one of the reasons she puts put such stock in it. Mm -hmm. But it is true that, I mean... I don't know if it was so much that she even kind of decided that the old values, you know, should win out every time so much as that she was just like so many of her heroines imprisoned by them. Right. Mm. I mean, right. Yeah, but to have such recul, like to have such perspective on that imprisonment, which comes through in her writing, and then to accept it and even promote it just seems like such a bizarre right but also i mean even just the idea that you would look back at the 1870s as the age of innocence yes 30 years later i mean that was all you know what the 1870s were also reconstruction yeah yeah and it's kind of a, a fascinating i mean she because she wrote she wrote the age of innocence much later right yes she was like, looking back nostalgia as yeah. well nostalgically and not and you can read it two different right. ways i i think not but i think it's just fascinating 20s, right? that yeah that 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 do we think i mean do we think that the age of innocence is is reverent about that the time old world of yeah well in a way it is but it, because well i see it and i'm not the first person to say this I, i'm sure i've heard someone else say it and this is why i think this but i also see it as i see it as kind of double entendre because it's also the innocence of these young women and how they're an enforced innocence in that they weren't allowed to know anything about anything about the way the world works right. about how to even come near dreaming of independence apart from getting married to a rich guy right um you know they weren't allowed to know anything about sex and uh, and so that is kind of like, I think she's being a bit ironic and a bit, she's right. criticizing that enforced innocence. But then I do think that there's a kind of rose-tinted nostalgia to it as well. And it was, and she was of that time. But wouldn't you be, I mean, after World War One, and she, we all know that she took, a, you know, she could have gone home as many expats did and instead she stayed in Paris and had her charity and she raised lots of money and she had 
I believe she was helping women work and she was giving them, she was paying them for their work. She was participating in the war effort as well. She was reporting as a journalist during that time. I mean, she was pretty. But don't you think after that and after everything she would have seen firsthand, it just would have seemed also kind of innocent by default? Like after, you know, pre-war innocence too. Yeah. Is that too much of a stretch? No, it would. But is she looking back fondly or is she looking back thinking, well, she's definitely fond about, I think, the aesthetic sensibilities of that class, because I do think sure. through yes. all of sure. her work yeah. and especially the early stuff, the home decoration manuals, and you know, all the work. <laughs> yes, about, that was her first published first book. and did really, really well. And I really wanted to read it to be able to talk about it. And it's like, I mean, it, it, first of all, someone should release like. And it, uh, someone should, um, what's the word? Reissue it. Yes. Because it's really expensive. It's, I was not going to read it on Kindle. I was holding it up on her Kindle. No, no, no. But for $1.99, this is one of my favorite things about copyright and e-readers. For $1.99, I have her entire of everything she's written, every short story, Stop. every piece of nonfiction, probably that French man. That is a deal. And That's a it, real deal. Conveniently in my hand. We should be sponsored by Europe. <laughs> I'm not even going to say the name of it until they give us an offer. But yeah, <laughs> withhold that. Um, no, but anyway, I yes, it is so interesting. But I think that from an aesthetic standpoint, she thought that real humanity had to do with appreciating finer things in life. And I listen as a like fashion journalist, I totally understand the uh, that l- seeing that kind of material world as a form of art mm. um, and that appreciation for it and almost being addicted to it. Like, I I, I, I totally respect that. Mm. I just don't... I just don't see how... I, again, what I don't understand about her, and it's like I like almost stayed up thinking about it the other night, is the extent to which her nostalgia doesn't gel with what I think of as her truly progressive, frankly, for lack of a better word, feminist um, way of writing women of that time. Well, what's so fascinating too is, so let's think about like Undine Sprague who comes to France and is kind of like thrown into this like very ancien regime world of, of chateau and of, you know, curtsying to your mother-in-law and of sitting in these um, and of sitting in these frigid you know galleries doing embroidery with the women of the family and she makes it sound absolutely deadly yeah. tradition and yeah. stability no you're right you're right and you're right and the the name undine so this is from the custom of the country right which was a massive bestseller at the time but the name undine my favorite part about this is that her father was a chemist and he came up with he was he prided he prided himself on being a bit of a linguist and so he knew the word undulate in french and he came <laughs> up with the name undine for his daughter based on this hair waving product that he created that helped you create an undulating uh, mob. So that anyway, was their fortune, right? That was yeah. their fortune. But Undine as a name, and they call her Undie in the parents. Undine Sprague. I mean, that is a diss. Like her whole character's name is a diss. Right? Yeah. Definitely. Except Wharton writers with such just total vigor yeah. that there she is in the chateau, and you're kind of rooting for her to sell the tapestries. Right. Mm. Right. You're like, hawk those things off and get that. Go for it, Andy. Get, get, get it, Andy. <laughs> Amazing. Speaking of tapestries, like what kind of decor do we want in the dining room? And yes. Yeah. So, okay. So to make her feel comfortable, I did come across from the decoration of houses um, that she believed that, well, first of all, she was very into simplicity. Um, you know, it had to be the architecture, not the ornament. She hated clutter. She hated the kind of idea of like accumulating objects she thought that was all very gauche so that's good we will not have it in a cluttered place but she said in the decoration of houses um that she turning off the lights and brightening the evenings with wax candles ensures that the living room doesn't look like a railway station the dining room like a restaurant living room like a railway station exactly (laughs) so we know that we will have candles Uh, i kind of agree with that though despite the fire hazards involved Mm. It's a nice touch. It's a nice touch. I think it is like all aristocrats equated comfort with vulgarity in Mm. many ways. Yeah, yeah. So such a good point. Open all the windows. Make sure it's really cold. A draft. 
comfort. For a certain type of comfort, apparently she had a mania for side tables and there were all of these armchairs, like hundreds of armchairs at the mount, very comfortable upholstered armchairs. And each one had its own little table, so you'd always have a place to put your lemonade. And apparently after the afternoon excursions, her guests would come back from their various, you know, pursuits. And she would have a whole bunch of books for them to choose from, like the newest editions, beautiful editions of books. And they would all sit together, but separately reading for a bit before dinner, which is like my dream. I (laughs) love that. Like during the cocktail hour. Yeah. Should we bring that back as a social event? Can we please? Reading together, but separately is like Mm. the best Reading while not talking and drinking lemonade with your own side table. Reading alone together. Yeah, but I like the idea of everyone sort of drinking a glass of wine reading and then that's what you bring that's how you get ready instead of getting all your chat out before you even sit down at the table like you arrive at the table with some serious chat it's like one of those silent dance parties (laughs) but reading but reading it's really my fantasy we also like to as we talked about greet them with cold champagne so we know so just to make sure so we've got the candles lit we've got some books appropriately scattered around we've got some well upholstered chairs should we talk about the menu yeah, I think I think um, we would like to hear what you have in mind. Up the, we heard something about but one more tip before we do please, that. Yeah. Please, yeah. In this book, yeah, she talks about French dinner parties. Oh my god! Oh, please, big fan, big fan. But she has one. She has one huge gripe with French dinner parties. According to some immemorial custom, French dinner parties in her era, um, there was an unbreakable rule that the host and hostess, always a host and hostess back in the day. Um, had to sit directly across from each other. I can't tell you why. Edith couldn't tell you why either, but she she thought this was just... That? Yeah. Some people still adhere Do to Do they? Them. Okay. I have never been exposed to this rule, but Edith had... She was like, that is... So even if the kind of numbers yeah. were, unba- were imbalanced... So Edith said that often that would lead to, because I guess if you had... Whatever. I can't do the math, but if you had an odd number, it could end up with like three women all together and yeah. she said it would be like a plum pudding where all the plums have run to <laughs> to one corner and Edith, Edith said many a French dinner party had been ruined by that um by that custom wow yeah I she I have so to did say she prefer to split her. them up and it wasn't a English matter way? of splitting it was it was literally this extremely rigid placement where not it's not not even like like they could be sitting next to each other they had to be Direct, is this what you have? Is this? I've just di- seen this like I've seen this other. like with my husband's, like probably like grandparents. Okay, interesting, interesting, yeah. interesting. The age that my husband's grandparents would be. Yeah, they would sit. Yeah, they would sit across from one another. So yeah. right, okay. Yeah, Edith. Edith yeah. felt that um, there were instances in which it would probably be more prudent mm. to. To mix it up. Yeah, I I, I actually agree with that. We'll definitely have to mix it up. I think we should do a really good plasmol. I think we should do a great plasmol. I mean, this actually brings us to something we were going to discuss a little later on, which is like, are we having a couple of her friends to make her feel comfortable? Like, can we get Henry James or is that just too obvious? I think it annoyed her how much Henry James came up. I have a really good idea. It's okay. a little bit like I mean, I just think I think we should just go for it. I want this to be a good party. I want yeah. her to go home and stay. That was a great I want her to party. Go home and not write in her diary. I want her to have had a little too much cold champagne, like kick what off her shoes, fall asleep in the hotel, and be like, "When are they inviting me again?" Um, she was just she was like epically unlucky in love. Mm. Yeah, don't you think we should just. Invite, invite the lover? Invite? No, no, not oh. the, as Hermione Lee said, the, <laughs> the hitherto obscure journalist, Morton Fullerton. The hitherto no, obscure Mort- journalist. Yeah. Boom. Morton Fullerton Boom. is out. Um, <laughs> no, don't you think we should just find somebody we think she might get along with? True, because oh, we have all of history at our disposal. Mm. Like, not all of it, but, you know, in That's between. That's such a great idea. The intervening years. She would years. like to be seated, seated, seated. Wow. Not John Updike. Next to <laughs> <laughs> not John update. Next to like a A A Gill. A A Gill. They were A Gill. House on fire. She also That's didn't drink very idea. much, and he didn't drink at all. So they can make fun of everybody. Well, he drank a lot until he stopped. Right. Yes. I think they because he's ruthless back, and scary. Bring back A A Gill. That would, I, that could be a lot of fun. And That's I would a great like, idea. I would just love to. I would have loved to have met him. Same. I actually met him once. 
Do you want to? Can I just tell you guys? Please. Met him for two seconds at a bus stop um, in Notting Hill when I was living in London, and he was campaigning with the mayor of London at the time, who was oh. another than Boris Johnson. He was campaigning for him. Yeah, so but bear in mind, well. everyone, bear in mind, please. But that part when of what Boris was mayor. Yeah, but also when Boris was mayor, he was actually quite. A, I'm not gonna. I won't, I'm not gonna go as far as to use the word good because what do I know? But he was a popular mayor. He was. He was in his um, lovable buffoon stage. He was. Right? Although a lot of people knew he was like. Yeah, but it's an easier pill to swallow when it's a, a, a mayor. That's true. Oh, anyway, so a, a mayor who <laughs> put his name on a lot of bikes. Exactly. <laughs> Wasn't that his? That was like his Anyway, but charming, charming, charming. A. A. Gill. A. A. Gill. By the way, British journalist, incredible restaurant critic, many things. Incredible restaurant critic. Some of the best books. Yeah, for the description of um, dumplings at a short-lived New York um, restaurant as fishy liver-filled condoms. Oh, my God. (laughs) What about describing the interior of Lamy Louis as looking like a colon? (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a theme here. (laughs) And then I I will never forget how much I cried. one of his last pieces, he died of cancer not that long ago. And he said he had a full English of cancers. And it was just, I mean, I was so attached to his writing. But he, as I think a lot of people. Like Wharton, didn't seem to care how many people he pissed off. That was kind of the no. charm of it. No. And some people try and imitate that, but it's kind of insincere. They're trying to seem like they don't care. Right. 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 He really, I don't think he did. No. No. So, okay. He's not. Okay. We'll be really. Um, I think that I think great, very great, great pitch. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. Well, now, now the menu is the stakes are really high. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, apparently, she used to have fourteen courses at her dinners at the Mount. Yeah, which was easier to achieve with a team of ten. And obviously, we know she hates pretentiousness, but then you also can't get things wrong. Bon appétit. Right. So I'm going to start, I'm saying, and Lauren, I really want your help with this. Okay. I'm thinking champagne, obviously cool champagne to start with, then some oysters on the half shell. Vintage champagne. Vintage champagne. That comes up all Wait, the time. Wait, vintage from her era? <laughs> That's going to be a little steep. She, um, <laughs> that, was a, that was like, you know, her shades of discrimination right. were so, um, wasn't it the archers, right? In the mm-hmm. age of innocence. Their oh, table yeah. isn't. Isn't quite. She she finds it a rather austere table, shall we say, acceptable, but the wine. Yeah, the, I think who who is it that has? I can't remember. So our, one of the families has. They have vintage wine. Okay. Well, we'll the actors don't. Happy and, to have vintage wine. Okay. Very happy to have. Because she'll notice. I'm just wine telling from you. From pre eighteen twenty, because that's easy. That's easy to procure. <laughs> into the. And then the I think cow. we need to have oysters on the half shell. Um, and I think they should come from PEI because, you know, a little patriotism. Now, the soup course, I don't think I can promise mock turtle because apparently it's made from calves' heads. Uh, that's what a mock turtle really is, allegedly, and I'm just not going to go there. I This is what I think. I We can try to, like, do the full Edith um, and give her everything she wants. Mm. But given that she was such um, an impassioned observer of... Not only social custom, but also kind of social innovation. I mean, she loved to see where things were going. What if, don't you think, don't you think, like, we're never going to do, we're never going to do the uh, Gilded Age Banquet. No. Um, I just don't know if we can. Also, their supply chain was so much worse than ours in some ways that unless it was, like, beautiful midsummer, everything was in, like, mayonnaise and aspic. And so we can do better we don't in even some know. Ways. For instance, her, her guests are always complaining. Someone complains that Archer's butler cuts the cucumbers with a steel knife. <laughs> and that's just so annoying to him. But I don't even know why. I was Googling it. Nobody knows. Does it taste metallic after? It, I, so someone did post the question on Reddit. People were like, not entirely persuasive. I don't know. Maybe this is right, but I the sourcing I can't vouch for. Somebody was like, the composition of metal was different then, and oh. the metal could get in the food, and 
I don't know. I don't know if it was poisoning or you what. You could taste but, it or something. I, you know um, what, Lauren? I totally agree with you. I think not. we're not going to try and replicate her whole thing. I think, you know, we want the dinner to go on and on. So the idea of tons of courses appeals to me just to make sure she sticks around. And also we know that she liked good food and plenty of it. Don't you think we should do something like so at least she can go back to her stodgy friends and be like, hey, don't, do you know what the, well, relative youth of Paris? Are? Like, I, I think we should have like, Pet nut. I think we should have a vegan. Um, I think we sharing should, plates. Yeah, I think we should maybe even have an entirely oh vegan menu. I think entirely we should, vegan. I'm in. I think that we this. should let we should let Edith know like what is going on yeah. in dinner parties, uh, 2022. Whoa, you just blew my mind. I'm into so, it. I'm into okay, it. You, so you okay, so like okay. So so her. She liked rich and choice food. This is the quote and a good deal of it. So we're going to give her a lot of rich and choice plant-based food and a good deal of it. I have a really, I love this um, Mira Soda recipe for a tomato tart. It's like with um, puff pastry, but it has, you make the, it, it's vegan and you make the stuff that sticks the tomatoes to the tart with um, a paste of pistachios and hazelnuts, I think it is. And, and it has saffron in it too. So that could kind of fit the rich, um, what is it? Rich and what? Rich and choice. choice. Rich, <laughs> rich and choice, and right? choice. I think that So she had like incredible. a healthy appetite. She had a healthy appetite. Okay, so that's good. We'll do the tomato tart. And then what other plant-based main can we do that would impress her? Because I think she would treat that as more of an appetite. We can keep the oysters, though. Do you think we can keep the Definitely. oysters? Okay, yeah. interesting. And then what about a kind of, I mean, would we do like a tagine? Or like a... A vegan tagine? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like a vegetable tagine on... I mean, I think she would like the presentation aspect of that and like something slow cooked, like aromatic, slow cooked in a beautiful dish. Mm. You know, mm. there's got to be the element, I think, of showmanship, too. We can't just serve her right. like cold meze. You're right. No, no hummus. <laughs> no avocado toast. No. <laughs> and we need a really good dessert because for me, she was the queen of the mic drop ending. It's so true. You it's know? so true. I mean, that, the, her kind of structural genius i feel like she always you know, so many writers myself included trail off mm. at the end and she never did i mean she loved to end with a bang you're right mm. you're right you're right okay well i mean i i happen to have a vegan cookbook that we could draw from there's some really no. sweet it doesn't potatoes. have to be vegan i'm just trying to listen i'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to blow Edith's mind in a way that it has not yeah, been I agree blown with you. before. No, no totally. No, like if we made her sweet potato brownies that are sweet potato so brownies. decadent, they'll blow her mind. Do they think they're, 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 oh, they're insane. Insane. They're insane. They're okay. amazing. No, and they contain like a kilo of almond butter. So they're, you know, we have, we're, but we're serving them on, on the finest silver. Obviously. But alongside a beautiful raspberry tart with a pistachio crust to tie in the tomato tart, perhaps. Yes. And then some I like coconut whipped cream. Yeah. Valide. Valide. Yeah. Okay. And some vegan ice cream. They're showing a lot of florals right now, so I was thinking I could florals? do a for spring. Groundbreaking. As I propose, you know, we're going to be sitting up straight. We're going to be wearing some pretty interesting dresses. Now, I love that we're doing this in the countryside because I um, got super inspired by a photo shoot that they actually, that Grace Coddington for American Folk actually did at the Mount. So they managed to, I don't know, like, well, it's rented, it's rented for weddings these oh, days. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was in 2012 that they Such did an it. auspicious. I know. Thing. Yeah. I know. Can you imagine? Yeah. I mean, I would love uh, but you know it's probably pretty expensive anyway so they managed to um to, to 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 have access to the grounds and the interiors of the house for this photo shoot in so you got you can find it online um it's american vogue annie Leibowitz, shop annie Leibowitz, style by grace coddington and it is exquisite and natalia vodinova plays 
like sort of play, you know, these very dramatic Leibowitz photo shoots where it's almost like Oh, it's like the Lily Bart tableaus. Yes. Oh, yeah. But she's playing, no, she's playing Edith Wharton in her American years. So before actually she would have been divorced um, from Wharton when she was like deep into interiors. But she was, there's like tableaus, there's like shots of her writing in bed because apparently she used to write in bed all morning, which is just. That was a real boss move. Not only did she write in bed with her Pekingese nectar, but then she would throw all the pages on the floor and make her maid pick them up. And I think it was more like her trusty kind of like right-hand woman, but somebody had to actually go pick them up and then put them all in order and transcribe them. Yeah. The dream. But so in this- That's how I write. Same. Same. Exactly. Of course. Um, so in this, uh, in this shoot, the sort of cover photo is this stunning photo of Vodianova, um, in a uh, layers of Nina Ricci silk and lace off white, um, and it's it was actually made for the occasion, of course, for Grace Coddington. Anything, anything, and then and she and it, it's a high necked, long sleeve, but with kind of like bustling layers flowing off of her, and she's running down the steps of the mount towards the garden. And I love this idea. And it's a it's a cloudy day, and I love this sort of country the freedom of that of wearing a dress but in the countryside it's something loose and flowy and then she's wearing old um manolo blonic black boots with this white dress and i love that kind do you guys know what i mean leather leather boots that look of maybe you're gonna go riding or maybe you're gonna go running around in the countryside and you're gonna get mud all over your boots but you've got this lovely flowy dress on over top elizabeth of it. darcy showing up very elizabeth darcy i mean it's obviously sister. a slightly different era of elizabeth dress darcy. that was a slip elizabeth darcy that elizabeth bennett yeah. but she would have taken his name elizabeth darcy <laughs> nae, nae bennett i just <laughs> i know but i went along with it i was like yeah, i just went with it fanfic yeah exactly 100%. i just totally went with it <laughs> But um, but so yeah, it's that kind of vibe, except for um, slightly different era. So and this is pre-divorce, so we're it's still in the late eighteen hundreds. I'm so excited uh, to get dressed for this party. Yeah. I will wear anything you tell me. To. Okay, these and just I I actually want to like erase Elizabeth Darcy slash Bennett because her dresses are going to be much more empire wasted, where it's like all about putting your boobs on a silver platter, basically. Whereas this is a, this is um. More yeah, the waistline is a little bit different, um, but the sleeves have a little bit of volume to them, common. Okay. And um, you would maybe then throw a sort of marked waisted uh, wool coat over top and you've got your... I have that's one That's how you'd arrive and leave. And a hat. Um, I think we would like have a Stephen Jones kind of oh. millinery hat. And But because we know that Lily Bart liked to... what? How did they call it? She liked to decorate her own hats but she didn't say decorate it was she oh she trimmed her own Trim, hats trimming, yeah trimming. Yeah. yeah there was one hat that I foreboding had her eventual frosted fate. grapes on it can i have some frosted grapes on my hat I think you must. or just some kind of mm. you simply I want must a fruit. fruit i want some flair i would like fruit. an opera yeah. cape would that be okay i know we're not going uh, to the opera so she'd probably be pretty annoyed um, I think you should grow with it. Okay. Are we you having dinner inside or outside? It's inside because we have candles. Right? Inside, but it's going to be freezing. We're turning off the heat. It's going to feel drafty. You're not going to know Drafty and aristocratic. We'll have a picnic because she'll stay the night. And then we'll have a picnic. I was thinking, actually, that this should probably be a proper house party yeah. weekend. I think so. Mm, a weekend. And she's got I'll her be the one lover A girl there. So she's got to have time to really get. I'll be the one to pick up her, her papers from the floor if you guys need someone to do that. <laughs> I'm down. I'll wake up at six. Now, one more, just um, one more aesthetic note here. I mean, because I, I'm spending a lot of time on this also because um, she spends a lot of time on these aesthetic descriptions. She's very into fashion as well as um, interiors. Like, there's this one description that stood out to me of Countess Olenska in the Age of Innocence when she arrives in a room after dark. And Wharton writes, she was dressed as if for a ball. Everything about her shimmered and glimmered softly, as if her dress had been woven out of candle beams. And she carried her head high, like a pretty woman challenging a room full of rifles. Like, I love these intense entrances and descriptions. Mm. Like, mm. it just never occurred to me, dude. The thing that's so Describe funny about what, 
I mean, it's it's true though that also reading Wharton, her descriptions, her sense of fashion is so yeah. anchored, yeah. and it's time that I can never like half the time you can't tell whether the dress is meant to be really stunning or just the height yeah. of. Yeah, I'm missing so many cues. It's true. Yeah, which is so, but it's so interesting when you're thinking about fashion. Is it to to the reader of her time? I mean, it would be glaringly obvious who is properly dressed and who is not. And like, exactly. I'm sitting there googling. Like, I remember there's a big distinction about um, Countess Olenska and Mae Welland, and who is wearing a dress with a tucker, yeah. and who is wearing a dress <laughs> without a tucker, and you're just like. Do you want a tucker? Is it wrong to wear a tucker? What's a tucker? Is it gauche? Do we wear a tucker? I don't actually know what a tucker is. A tucker, Google tells us, <laughs> some kind of like muslin, I don't know, it's like a muslin crop top that you wear. Oh, it's a under, bra. Yeah, it's a bra. <laughs> it's undergarment. It's, it's an empty. So I would so assume that May's May had wearing a tucker. the tucker. Yeah. Countess did not. Oh, that says a lot about both characters. She's untuckered. Untuckered. She's untuckered. I'm coming untuckered. Divorced and untuckered. I'm totally going to be untucked. But uh, I also want to know on the subject of ambiguity, like she's obsessed with beauty in her books as a weapon, as currency, as pretty much the only thing the lady's got. So she's got to use it. And her characters are all famous beauties. Was Edith Wharton considered a beauty? I think not. No. Right. Um, but she did have excellent red hair. <laughs> Thank Wait, goodness. there's just, uh, there's also this other thing that I'm fascinated by. Like whenever you see depictions of Wharton's characters or Wharton, they, everyone has curly hair in their quaffed updos that shoot out from their hats. Like very, sort of like yeah. Very voluminous. Well, how range. do you think Undine, how do you think Undie got so rich? <laughs> right. The undulations are not, they don't yeah, undulate yeah. themselves. And so did everyone just curl their hair for hours if they had straight No, hair? their French maids did, obviously. Okay, so you had to have curly hair. I think you had to have, which none of us appear to. So, well, didn't people also just bathe a lot less frequently? And so, I don't know that. Helps. Yeah, but if I didn't bathe, if I didn't wash my hair for like a month, it would just be like even straighter than it so is now. Right, right, right. In a really unflattering way. Hmm. Hmm. I don't think. Honestly, I don't think she was particularly considered a beauty. She married at I think twenty three which I think was quite late. Getting up there. Getting up there. 23. Um, and of course, she had a very unsuccessful marriage. Um, unsuccessful and long, which are the two things. It's really bizarre. <laughs> you yeah. She Together. eventually ended yeah. up divorcing, but was sort of married to this, by all accounts, Teddy? Very complicated. Teddy? Yeah. I think he suffered from bipolar disorder. Yeah, poor guy. It didn't sound easy. Um, very complicated. Any perspective. Yeah, but she stuck around for a long time. I was reading, I was listening to in the Hermione Lee how, you know, she thought it was, he would just get so anxious about things like money and she thought it was so strange that he would, you know, meanwhile she's building the mound and it's like this colossal, like unbelievably detailed, you know, palace, Italian palace in the Berkshires. She's like, why is he so stressed about money? I don't understand. Yeah. So I don't think it was easy to be her husband. Did he yeah. have a profession, Teddy? Question. I don't think... No, Her father think, certainly did. Right. I think he was a professional gentleman also. Okay. Yeah. I love the idea of being a professional gentleman. But the men are sort of... She doesn't... Uh, there's a criticism of Edith Wharton that says that her female characters are much better developed than her male characters. And, like, I can see that. But I think that she... I think she kind of implies that her male characters are also totally trapped within the system. Yeah. Um, you know, like Selden or um, Newland are. Newland they? and Newland is, by all accounts, her. Well, yeah. Right. Newland is the transposition of her desires and limitations onto just a broader canvas because he's a man and he has more choices. Mm. But like they're both, I don't know, they're like the same age and they're the same. I mean, I think. That's consensual so that Newland, Newland is slash her. Nate Archibald. Slash Nate. <laughs> Have you seen Nate? This is, we're really like, I don't think the you want to know. Here. Yeah, you're going to leave here with much. Apparently, Gossip Girl is based on the Asian. Oh, oh my God. The first book, anyway, not like the whole. No, 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 but I see. No, but the, the plot of the first book does completely yeah, yeah, yeah. line up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I have a, okay, so we know that she was an intensely private person because she destroyed much of her correspondence with her hitherto unfamous journalist husband, or lover, lover. rather, and, um, and friends. Uh, as well to obscure it's terrible <laughs> as well as her uh, and she kept separate journals too there was like her private personal journal that was apparently really choice and <laughs> rich and her kind of more official journal which was perhaps slightly on the drier side um do you get the sense that it would have been that it's going to be hard to get her talking um, we have, so we have like an arrow in our quiver okay. for getting it. Yes. I think it's going to be impossible with Edith, but, um, she wrote this story, a short story called Zingu once. It's one of her, it's like a little kind of just, um, curiosity of a story, but in Zingu, it's this, uh, well, <laughs> conveniently, but maybe also embarrassing for us is a satire involving a woman's book club that invites a famous author to one of its gatherings. No. <laughs> yeah. And it paints an absolutely withering portrait of a famous artist being forced to endure uh, the attentions of her, oh my God. her civilian oh my. admirers. Oh, no. Glory. <laughs> okay. Are you oh ready no. for the first line? Mrs. Ballinger is one of the ladies who pursue culture in bands as though it were dangerous to meet alone. <laughs> so Edith is psyched to be among us. Oh, oh no. <laughs> and basically what happens in the story is one of the club members who no one really likes because she's less pretentious than all the other ones um, just decides that the whole book club concept is total bullshit and starts going on and on about some mysterious new phenomenon called Zingu. Um, and to mess with them? Yes. <laughs> and it's like this emperor's new clothes situation where because one of them sort of tentatively nods at Zingu, like it just escalates. And the next one is like, yes, a lot of fortunes have been made and lives have been lost on Zingu. And everybody's like deep into it's kind the of... green bowler hat from yes. Vile Bodies. Okay. I love it. So the Zingu scam. Nobody wants to admit that they haven't heard of it. And she does such a great job winding everybody up that she finally just stands up and quits the meeting. She's like, I'm going to bridge. Oh, my God. <laughs> Five book club. Um, bridge calls. But the very famous lady author is so enthralled that she runs off after her. This may sound counterintuitive. But I think with Edith, flattery or even just kind of general, like, curiosity about her work and... Uh, life and person will get us nowhere. I hate to say it, but I think the only way to Edith's heart is to nag, nag, nag her. You've never heard of her work. Yeah. You have no interest in it. Yeah. You want to talk about probably hydrangeas. Gossip girl. I think of this as the yeah. French method. <laughs> Horticulture. It's, it's the je t'aime moi non plus method. Yeah, it's it a, is. She was very French in that way, it sounds like. I'm into it. Um. Mm. Also, well, the other thing I was thinking about, isn't there some, maybe it's a totally unspoken rule, but nonetheless, I have somehow intuited it. No talking about your children okay. with French people, yeah, right? French yeah. people hate that. I don't know. I mean, if you really know them, but I no. feel like if you go to a dinner party, like you can't be, you can't talk about boring stuff. You can't talk about your kids. Yeah. You probably uh, can't talk about real estate, but Edith would probably love to talk about real estate. So right. let's suspend so when we enter one. the door is our opening line and you are <laughs> <laughs> guys i i feel like i hear a carriage rolling up mm. should we get into action stations i'm putting my cape on <laughs> I'm, what am i doing frosting my grapes you can frost your grapes <laughs> and i'm just putting the finishing touches on my fake curls and Rusting them out in front of my hat. I'll get the door. Please email us, fanfarefanmail at gmail.com. If you just want to write in and tell us what you thought about an episode, or if you thought it was thought-provoking in some way and you want to expand on a subject that we brought up or that maybe one of our guests brought up, please don't hesitate. There is no wrong email. That's a very good point, Monica. Please also rate and review us if you liked this. Thank you very much to our producers, Matt Bentley-Viney and Joel Grove. See you next time in a fortnight. <laughs>